Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. I can feel your eyes rolling. How in the world can listening to the Death Dialogues Project podcast make you a better human? Consider the fact that we live in a society that is death-phobic, death-averse, and many people aren't even able to let themselves privately consider death-dying and the aftermath, let alone have the capacity to explore the areas for themselves or feel comfortable sitting in the presence of others and companioning people at end of life. We're living a new wave now where people are not only experiencing death and dying and the aftermath with eyes wide open and communicating openly, more openly about it, but there are trends that are more planet-friendly and human-friendly. And in these episodes, you will hear stories. So not only will every episode help you become more familiar and comfortable sitting in the space of death. You will also be informed about practices that are out there for when death visits you or your family. That is how you can become a better human. Practice in maintaining connection and space with others and yourself when death, our ultimate final transition, comes to town. Welcome to today's episode. In today's chat, we hear from Britt Keen as she shares her story of how her multiple near-death experiences led her to transformation and had her explore a career in death work. This episode was full of surprises, and I was blown away when Britt and I landed on a commonality we've had regarding our health and the lessons it taught us. And I know that bit of the conversation will affect many of our listeners. It's always fascinating to hear how people are led into the space of death work. I think you'll find this episode as fascinating as I did. Thanks for being here. Hey, I am so excited to have you here today, Britt. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So I'm wondering if it would be okay with you if you let our listeners know where you're at in the world and then, you know, really just dig into your story of what death and loss has meant to you throughout your life and lead us into your work then. All right. Thank you so much. Um, So I am currently residing in Sacramento, California. I am a certified death doula. Um, I came to this work through my own experiences with near death within my own life. I've had a handful of near death experiences uh, at this point in my life that started in my uh, late twenties, and I'm I'm in my sort of later 30s now, I'm 37. Mm -hmm. Um, 
yeah and it's 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 always an eye-opening experience when you encounter death to see how other people react to it that gives you a lot of information the first time that i came close to death uh was by hypothermia i had gone river rafting with a, a group of people and they were out of room in the boat so i just volunteered like hey it's okay you can just tow me from the back and so i was in an inner tube and um i ended up falling asleep in the water and we we stayed on the water well into the night and people forgot about me apparently <laughs> and so i was left in this water that got colder and colder and colder and uh i just remember being in a very very dark place it was just a world made out of just indigo everything was dark blue and all the sound was so so far away but i could hear people calling my name and i remember just wanting to be in this place where it was dark because it was so peaceful there and i was so tired but these voices were really quite insistent that I not be there and it felt like a great deal of effort to pull myself out of this place and find myself back in my body and uh I was eventually treated for the hypothermia and recovered um but that was such an interesting thing uh the people around me who the, the people that I was with that I was rafting with they were their emotions really ran the gamut as to my condition there were some that were in complete panic just she's blue we have to do something freaking out do we call someone do we take her to the hospital and there were people that didn't know ironically the people that were closest to me were angry they were finding all the reasons to be mad at this situation over which they had no control they were angry with other people for not noticing me they were angry at me for having fallen asleep or not told anybody where i was even though you know everybody knew that i got the raft at the back of the boat and that at the time you know i was i was in my later 20s and i just I was very confused myself because you you come from this dark indigo world where where death is waiting for you and when you climb back into your body it's it's very confusing and I'm sure the hypothermia did me no favors at the time as far as processing processing material uh it was just a very confusing time it took several hours before the world made a lot of sense again but reflecting on it it was just profound to see how people reacted and how different everybody's reactions were mm. i remember reading a book in um say junior high something like that and i if i if i remembered the title it it was some classic that we had to read but i i was always struck by the scene where he almost dies of hypothermia out in the mm -hmm. wild and the commentary about it, which I've always held to be true, assumed that it was true, 
was that it's a very peaceful death and that you just get more tired and more tired and slip away to sleep. Yeah. And it sounds, um, that's what it, it just came to my mind when you're saying that about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It was, I remember just feeling a little bit depressed once I was back in my body of just like this mm. being in this state, you know, and of course, when you, when you are hypothermic or close to death, it's very uncomfortable <laughs> just in your yeah. body. A lot of things are shutting down and uh, I had pulled away from my body wherever I was in my consciousness. And so coming back fully and feeling the sensation of being in this body that was not fully operational, I wanted to go back. <laughs> I remember mm. having this feeling of just wanting to go back to where it was. So just, like a deep, deep sleep. So how is, how did that follow you up until the next experience you're going to share with us? But what did, what did that <laughs> do to you, you know, in the way you walked in the world? It, uh, I didn't think too much about it. Um, I didn't have time to think a whole lot about it because of the reactions to people or the reactions of the people around me rather. Um, there was, there was a lot of very high emotions that I felt, you know, once I became aware of, oh, okay. So people are mad about this. They're mad about me. Once that registered, I, I switched my priorities to, okay, now I have to make sure everybody else is happy. And so I, I just went into caregiver mode while I was, hypothermic and just being, I'm okay. I'm okay. You don't need to be upset. And so it became kind of this thing of, Oh, remember that time that Brit worried us so much. And isn't that funny? It was, you know, again, the, the group people that I was dealing with were, uh, not the most emotionally mature at the time as, as, uh, I can tell you're being so careful. Are. I am trying to be so <laughs> considerate. We all grow as we age. The <laughs> uh, 20-somethings uh, don't always have the greatest perspective in life. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't want to be too terribly damaging, but it was, it, it was, what I carried with it was more just uh, kind of a a traumatic response in that I knew that I was responsible for me. Mm. I was with a group of people that everybody seemed to have an eye on each other and somehow I was forgotten. And at the end of it all, even though I came close to dying, that was still somehow my responsibility. And I was left very mm. much alone uh, to, to even take care of myself. They didn't take me to a hospital. They, they took me to the, the closest person's home and they just set me in my clothes in the shower and just turned the shower on me on hot and just told me to sit there for as long as I wanted to. And uh, then they left me alone. So my takeaway from that was that, wow, this is a very lonely feeling. And uh, that, that was, that was one of the first things that, that started to shape how do we support people in dying? Mm. Wow. And um, the, 
the second time there's a there's a total of four here <laughs> we're going wow. to be covering yeah um and and again this is i feel like these were all i'm i'm a fairly spiritual person so i i have tended to take all of this information as okay i get it now <laughs> it's yeah. what i should be doing here I feel like I've been given these lessons with some amount of intentionality. So the the second time there was an actually there was actually an attempt made on my life. No. I was involved in a violent partnership and um my partner at the time tried to kill me and so that was I didn't actually lose consciousness. My body was was fine but the intent was there and I was aware of what was potentially going to be happening. Um, yeah, he, he tried to uh, suffocate me. So that was, you know, he, he let up at a good point where I was able to get away, but it was definitely this feeling of, Oh, Oh, this, this could be lights out. And I remember before, like the moment that he put his hand on my head, um, I heard a voice and it's such an, I always feel a little bit awkward telling people about it because you can really see where people sit within themselves and their own sense of spirituality when I say it. But I heard this voice very clearly that just told me, you're going to need to hold your breath. And it was just okay. And so I held my breath and uh, I was pushed down into mud and I held my breath and I was fine. And uh, something about that voice coming really helped me to remain calm in that moment. I truly didn't feel fear. It was just a, oh, Oh, this is what's happening now. And then, of course, you know, I got away, obviously. Um, and I have, I've heard that voice a couple of times in my life. Um, I, I do ascribe the, the term angel to it, because I don't know what else to call it. And it, it feels very much like that's what an angel must be, something someone that is looking out for you and it definitely wasn't my voice so that's a that was a very profound thing the third time that I nearly died was from uh I donated my eggs twice and uh I was a I'm a very healthy person I felt like I had this genetic obligation <laughs> to put my material out in the world. And I know, you know, at the time that I wasn't prepared to have children myself, I thought this could be a, a good gift to give to the world. So I donated my eggs twice. The first time I did it, no problems. You know, it's an arduous process with the fertility drugs and everything, but it's it, it really was fairly easy for me. The second time though, uh, they gave me more of the fertility drugs than they did the first time. And I remember asking my doctor, okay, this is, this is a higher dosage than it was last time. Why is that? He said, well, because 
your your numbers are so high. I want to see what your body can do. It's like, okay. Well, you're the doctor. I trust you. Now, when you're when you sign up for this to be an egg donor, part of the process is you have to, once you've cleared all the genetic and psychoval, you have to speak with a lawyer for an hour going over the risks. And the risks are very real that you could die from this. It, it's a fairly risky process to do this. Um, and after my operation, I remember I didn't feel well. And once I got home, I continued to feel worse. There was this pulsating pain that just kept getting like a longer line from my abdomen up. And uh, at a certain point, I, I tried to get up and make myself tea. And I got maybe five feet before I my vision just went black. And I had to crawl on the floor. And a uh, person who was looking after me took me to the emergency room. And what had happened was I had the, the medical term was that I had overstimulated, which meant that my ovaries were kind of the visual that I like to give is they were like Jiffy Pop. Mm. So they had already extracted all of the ovaries that they are all the eggs that they were going to use. But in doing so, they had to puncture each ovary um, around 20 times. And, uh, but they had given me so much fertility drugs that my ovaries were still hyper-producing eggs beyond what they had extracted. So uh, they kind of burst. And your ovaries are not, they're, they're just kind of hanging out in your abdominal cavity. They're not contained by anything like your uterus. So my body was filling up with blood. Mm. And that blood and fluid got to a point where it was suffocating my organs. So even though the blood wasn't going anywhere, I was experiencing organ failure. <clears throat> and uh, I remember to, still to this day, despite all my many life experiences since then, that is still the most profound physical pain I have ever experienced in my life. Um, it, I remember telling the doctor that it was perspective altering pain. Mm -hmm. It just, it changes your understanding of what a human being is capable of enduring. And uh, I was, I was convulsing at a certain mm -hmm. point. I heard myself praying, <clears throat> which, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly spiritual person, but I'm not prone to just pray out loud. So uh, hearing this kind of involuntary praying was when I told the doctors, like, okay, I, I will be needing more pain medication because this is apparently more than I can handle at this point. And that's when they administered that. I went into shock. Um, they pulled me back. I stayed in the hospital for four days and four nights. Um, I looked like an absolute zombie, just grayish white, big dark circles under my eyes. 
and um and I looked like I was about four to six months pregnant as uh they they couldn't remove the blood from my body and they're like don't worry about it it'll just reabsorb and it was very uncomfortable but I did recover I had a bit of a belly for a bit <laughs> which was more comical than anything else I did get some dirty looks when I would order a beer after that but it was um it I recovered well and uh the last time and much more profound time uh about 4 years ago I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and my first flare was quite extraordinary I uh so Crohn's disease is an autoimmune disease of the intestines it it attacks the gut so your immune system the the lining of your intestines ceases to recognize itself and goes to war with itself and it turns out your intestines do a lot of work for your body mm -hmm. um so i i developed lesions all throughout my intestines and this the disease Crohn's tends to just attack like a, a part of your intestines, you know, a few inches here, a few inches there. Mine was so extreme that it was my entire digestive tract. So from from tip to tip, from mouth to the very end, um, I had mm -hmm. lesions starting from the inside of my mouth all the way through my intestines. Um, and this process of being this sick uh, the bleeding started, it was light and then not really that worrisome for about six months. And then all of a sudden I had a horrible pain one day, I went to the doctor, they refused to examine me. They refused to even palpate my abdomen. <laughs> they just looked at me. I've always taking really good care of my body and been very active. So I, I have a very athletic build. So I, I walk in, I look like a healthy person by, you know, whatever air quotes, healthy visual standard we have. And uh, this doctor refused to examine me. And he asked me about my diet. And I was a vegetarian at the time. He said, well, then you're getting enough fiber. You don't, you shouldn't have any problems. He sent me home with the medication. I took the medication. It did nothing. And I tried to go back to the doctor and he refused to see me. I said, no, 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 this, the medication didn't work. You, you have to do something now. And he said, well, if, if it didn't work, then you need to go to the ER. I was uninsured at the time, so I didn't go. And uh, later the pain got worse and the bleeding got worse. So I went to urgent care where once again, nobody would actually examine me. Like they, I eventually got seen, but they would not palpate me. They would not take a blood sample nothing and at the time i was getting ready to move i was relocating from sacramento to the bay area can i can i ask mm -hmm. a question about that of course do you think that was because of your insurance status which the refusal uh, that they wouldn't examine to me? examine yeah um you know i i suppose that's possible but i've i've still always been just completely baffled especially at the urgent care where, you know, I'm paying in cash there. And um, it was, it was really interesting. My, my sister went with me at the time and we still joke about the ineptitude of that doctor and joke about how we, we think he was just like the mailroom clerk that was 
pulling a prank <laughs> just came yeah, in playing doctor because mm. uh, it was just we had been waiting for hours and he just came in kind of nervous and just like uh and just he more gestured at my body would not touch my body and mm. uh was just like well it, if the pain subsides and you're probably fine and at that time the pain had subsided a bit so i went home and then you know my process of moving began and it the the bleeding got to a point before the move that I was probably losing around 12 to 14 ounces of blood a week. Um, it would just, I would go to the bathroom and the toilet would just be filled with blood. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> then I, I but I, I had this new job, this awesome new job that was waiting for me. So I was like, I can just get set up in my new place and get set up at my new work then I've got this, these awesome benefits that are going to kick in and then I'll go to the doctor. Like I've, I've endured it this long. I can just keep going. And I don't think I even got a full two weeks in to my new job in the Bay area before I had to go to the emergency room. I had a, a fever that wouldn't go away for a week and I was worried that I was going septic. So I went and that's where I got my diagnosis of Crohn's disease. Um, however, even with a diagnosis, uh, at this point, there had been a year's worth of inertia of this disease. It was already picking up speed inside my body. And uh, for the following four months, I deteriorated very rapidly. Um, the part of my symptoms were that I could not keep food in my body. Um, I would have about 20 minutes between eating something and immediately just going to the bathroom and my body getting rid of it. And so I became very malnourished. My body took nutrition out of my muscle tissues. I had no fat left. And uh, my muscles, thank goodness, I, would, I had been very active, so I had lots of muscles to feed with. But uh, it was, I was quite emaciated. And I remember how tired I felt. And that was extraordinary for me because I had been like a lifelong insomniac. I could, I got four to five hours a night, I was good. And I was getting when I was sick, I was sleeping for 13 hours a day and still just struggling, struggling every minute. I could barely breathe. I could barely walk. And I wasn't connecting it to anemia, um, though I, I knew that I was horribly, horribly anemic also. And the bleeding, of course, was still going on. So um, eventually it got to a point where I, I could not keep weight on. I was consuming at least 15,000 calories a day, at, at least. I was, sometimes I would eat three breakfasts by 8 a.m., just, and, and big breakfasts, and, and then just, I felt like I was literally eating all day long, and it, it didn't matter because it wouldn't stay in my body long enough to actually uptake any of that nutrition. So it was just eating to, to feel the fullness, and then immediately, getting rid of that 
and then still bleeding uh, just so much. And uh, I remember going to my roommate at the time who had been one of my dearest friends. I truly, I, I had to use handrails wherever there were any. So if there's stairs or anything, I was just like clawing at the walls to pull myself to get places. And this is, I was living in Oakland and working in San Francisco. So I'm commuting on foot every day <laughs> between my apartment and my work. So there's a lot of walking and a lot of um, the exertion to cross the street. I would nearly black out every day and every time I had to cross the street. And I remember getting home and just being exhausted. And I sat down at my kitchen table with my friend and roommate. And she just kind of looked at me because I had sat down in what she thought was a very dramatic fashion. I kind of just flumped into the chair and was panting. And she was like, so how are you? And I thought about how I was. And I looked at her and I said, I think I'm dying. I think I'm actually dying. And what's very strange about that is that I'm okay with it. And I've experienced periods of profound depression in my, in my past. And this wasn't like that. I wasn't sad. In fact, I didn't feel any emotions attached to, to any of this. It was just, I was so tired. I was tired in a way that my my bones and my soul were heavy. And everything, including breathing, took more exertion than I had. And I, I tried to explain this to her. I was just, I, I think I'm dying and I think I'm okay with it because I'm just so tired. I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. And her reaction was she got furious with me. And she told me that it's just really hard living with someone who's so negative. And I'm clearly depressed and I'm bringing everybody in the apartment down. And again, I, I, I think what was happening was because the blood loss was affecting my brain, I think it kind of shut down my emotions. Because I remember feeling like that should have been so hurtful, but I was just like, oh, okay, then I, I just won't talk to you about this anymore. And so I didn't. I didn't bring it up ever again. Um, and I went and stayed with my boyfriend at the time and uh, was, was practically living with him. And I remember coming out of his bathroom once I had weighed myself before we went to dinner. And then I weighed myself the following morning and I had eaten so much food at dinner, <laughs> so much food. And I had lost three pounds by morning mm. that I was starting to be very scared of that. Just, I could not keep the weight on. And I came out and I told him, Hey, I just weighed myself and I'm scared and look at my body. I'm not okay. And he just went, babe, you still look great. And I said, no, I really don't. My skin is changing color. I'm, I'm yellow. This isn't okay. I had developed these dark brown circles around my eyes, and my skin was just this horrible yellow color. My, I had no sheen 
to my skin at all. It was just very dull and waxy. Um, my lips had no color whatsoever. They looked like they were chapped all the time, but they weren't. And I was so thirsty all the time. Just every time I took a sip of water was just like it was saving my life. I was just drinking liters and liters of water a day. And uh, yeah, he just insisted that because I was still attractive, therefore, vis-a-vis, -vis, I am well. And it was, again, one of those dismissive things of just, I'm trying to tell you that I'm not well. You're just going to dismiss that because you don't want to look at this. And eventually I found myself a hematologist. Um, I told her, like, hey, here's what's up. I know my body. I know I'm not doing well. I had come to her for iron. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, we usually don't do infusions the first day. So we'll set up an appointment. And I, I actually, I felt in my gut that I had weeks left to live because it, this was just the most extraordinarily uh, difficult endurance I had ever had. Like I, I was not doing well. And I told her that much. I, like, I don't think I have enough time left to reschedule. I know my body. I feel like I'm shutting down. Please give me something today because I will not make it in two weeks. And she said, okay, well, insurance is kind of wonky. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll take some blood and test it today. If you're super low, I'll get on the phone with your insurance and see if we can get you some iron today. And I was like, please, please do that. And they took some blood, which was effectively Kool-Aid at the time. It's just red water. Um, and I waited for maybe 10 minutes and she came storming back into the room, the examination room. She said, what, what are you doing? I, I, I am waiting for my results. Like, did you work today? I was like, yes, I worked today. Said, Why would you work today? She started cursing, which was very interesting. She was furious with me. She's like, here's, here's the thing. You're going to cancel all your plans tonight and you're going to go to the ER. You have so little blood. I don't know how you're not dead right now. My hemoglobin, apparently a healthy place for your hemoglobin is to be between an 11 and an 18. And mine was at a four. Mm. So the reason I was yellow and brown and waxy was because my organs were shutting down from lack of blood. I went to the ER. And, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that was your shortness of breath too, because it's oh, your yeah. blood cells that carry the oxygen. So yeah. it's amazing that you were walking. It, I wasn't doing it well, any of that. to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was really hard. And I, I do credit myself with, uh, my endurance training because I've, I've been very athletic my whole life and running is my favorite sport. And I love distance running. I love it because it's hard. And I had been a distance runner prior to this. And I really do credit the, the mindset and the breathing techniques that that training gave me to mm -hmm. give me the tools to be as physically functional as I was during that time. Because it truly was like to, to cross the street or to go up a flight of stairs was the same thing as running 14 miles. 
it would just, it took that much focus and that much out of your body to, to accomplish that. So I had trained and it was, it was hard, but yeah. Um, I remember when I got the blood, I, I ended up getting six liters of blood. Um, your body really only holds about between seven and eight. So that was mostly water. And I remember by the fourth bag, emotions came back to me and I was just flooded by how alive I felt in my brain again. And just all the emotions. I was happy. I was crying. I was laughing. And I remember taking selfies because I was alone and taking selfies so I could between each bag, I wanted to see the progress. And by bag of four, I had pink lips again. And I had a little bit of pink in my cheeks. And by bag five, my skin was glossy again. And by the last bag, I looked like a human being. I looked like me again. And, uh, but again, it was such an interesting thing because here I was brought back from the literal brink of death. And I called my roommate. You're like, hey, I'm at the hospital. I just got an emergency transfusion. Um, they gave me Benadryl. They give you Benadryl when you get a mm -hmm. transfusion because it's technically, you know, it's from donors and they don't want you to reject it. So they give you an antihistamine. And uh, so I couldn't drive. I couldn't transport myself. And my roommate at the time refused to come get me because she was in the middle of watching a movie. Because it just, it wasn't real to her. None of this was real. And I remember sitting after I got off the phone with her in my hospital bed and just weeping because this was something so profound. And I was alone in experiencing it. And that didn't feel right. It didn't feel right. Just, I mean, there's the fear aspect, the, the, all the emotions that I was going through and how I, I wanted, I craved support for that. But it was also this entire process of dying or coming close to death was a profound experience in and of itself. I was going through all kinds of remarkable changes in my consciousness, in my perception of time and space in the world, um, light changes when you, get closer to death your your visual perception changes slightly the world is it was very sparkly to me the closer that i got um your senses become so enhanced and all these amazing transformational things were happening and nobody wanted to talk with me about them because in order to do so they had to acknowledge that i was unwell and you can't be in an american and unwell that's just not how we do things Mm -hmm. And uh, so I stumbled upon Elua Arthur on social media quite by accident. And uh, she's a, the death doula with Going With Grace. And it was just like this beam of light that connected everything for me. It was like, oh my gosh. Here's this woman talking openly about death and she's talking about it joyously because I, I loved, like, of course, I'm grateful that I survived these experiences. And because I got to survive them, I look back on them adoringly. I learned so much about 
what it is to be a human being through coming close to dying so many times. These are cherished experiences to me. And here's this woman talking about death and dying in that same joyous way that I felt. And uh, we, we started chatting just online. I would comment on her things. She would comment back occasionally. I found out she was the keynote speaker at a death symposium here locally in Sacramento. This was a year ago. I went to it and she recognized me which blew my mind because I was totally fangirling. <laughs> and she's like, I know you from Instagram. Mm -hmm. And, you know, inside I'm going, oh my God, oh my God, but you're so cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, she invited me to lunch with her and, and a group of other people that were at the symposium. Um, I had been crowdfunding to try to raise enough money to get death doula certified and she was there and we talked about it around the table um one of the women at the table asked if she could contribute and i was like yes of course but i and that since death that's one of the other things i used to be very proud and i'm no longer uh as proud as i was i now will reset I, I am receptive to help and i am receptive to gifts now <laughs> and previously i was like oh no 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 no, I'm Miss Independent. I don't need anything. Please keep it to yourself. And so I was like, yes, gifts. I love those. And uh, she ended up funding nearly half of what my my cost for certification was, which was just so moving. And I've been working as a death doula now. And I feel like I have... Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask if you could, before we start getting into that journey, you know, it's one thing to have all that blood give, put, put into you and feel yourself coming back alive, but you've described a disease process where the blood will keep leaving. How did you get your Crohn's under control? Oh, yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I did use immunosuppressive treatments. Uh, I did Remicade for about six months but like i said if i i did my disease big <laughs> um if i'm gonna do something i really commit to it so uh my this is an autoimmune thing so you get these infusions of these drugs that shut down your immune system so that your body can recover and most people who have crohn's disease stay on some form of immunosuppressive their whole lives after diagnosis. And I did it for about six months before my body formed antibodies to the immunosuppressives, which it is absolutely not supposed to do. But I, uh, I have an extraordinary immune system. I remember being like super crushed when I got that information. Um, just being like, this is like the superwoman disease and I'm killing myself by having it. And I talked to my doctor and her solution was, okay, what we're going to do now, obviously we have to pull you off of this medication because your body recognizes it, but we're going to put you on like three other immunosuppressives at the same time. And this other thing and more steroids. And I think we can crush your immune system down that way. And mm. 
I was like, I feel like I have a different relationship with my body now. Let me try to do this without medication. And I, I really loved and respected my doctor for how frank she was. And she just told me flat out, she's like, you are an individual, you are autonomous, you get to make whatever decisions you want for your well-being. But I will tell you, as, as a specialist of your disease, I think you'll die within a few months if you go off this treatment. I said, let me try. Really feel like if I listen, I can do this. And uh, I've been successful. I've been off of medication for four years now, three and a half years, I guess. Um, without relapse, I, I still experience some symptoms, but for the most part, I am very healthy. I'm able to be athletic again. I found uh, just through listening to my body that I can, the stress was the biggest thing. So I kind mm -hmm. of, I look at this disease as, as a bit of, it's kind of my best friend in a lot of ways. It's a guardian angel in and of itself because it has kept me from putting myself in stressful situations. It's, it's looking out for me. I get that that stress feeling in my gut and I know that whatever's causing that, I should probably walk away from it. So if it's a, a bad relationship, if it's something happening interpersonally in my friendships, if it's something about my work, if it's anything, just a confrontation, whatever, if, if I start to get that real deep gut stress feeling, that's my body telling me, no, 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 this isn't more important than your life. And I find a way to go elsewhere. And uh, my life is very calm now. <laughs> it is very, uh, it is absolutely centered around my health and well-being. Um, it's made me, it's given me permission to put myself first, which was not a thing I knew how to do before. And so I'm very, very grateful. You know, it's a, it's a very steep learning curve to get that lesson, but I'm still so grateful to have this because it, because it is chronic, that means it's not going to go away no matter how, how good I am to my body. This is, this is just the way my body functions now. So it, it was a long process. Uh, it took, it took about the six months of the Remicade for the bleeding to stop completely. And that's a, a blessing. There has been a, just two times in my life since then where I experienced any bleeding. And again, that was, you know, a, a giant flag of, hey, whatever is stressing you out right now, we do not need that. Mm -hmm. Just don't need it at all. And um, so I've, I've lived my life differently since then. And I, I credit a great many things, homeopathic things and naturey, crunchy things. <laughs> it's it's yep. mostly just been my my desire to stay healthy and my commitment to that. Just nothing comes before. Well I have that. to interject for a minute here because 
I know from experience, there's going to be people listening that are familiar with Crohn's and how severe it can be. And they'll be saying, no, no, that can't happen. But what we didn't know when we were having this conversation is I'm also a Crohn's person. Really? And yes. And everything you're saying is totally resonant to me. I've been off wow. of medicine now for eight years. Wow. And good for you. Yeah. And it's the same exact, like the gift that it's given is if I couldn't honor myself before, and especially with having so many other humans in my life that I was responsible for putting people's needs mm -hmm. before mine, it has been the huge wake up call, as you said. And I totally relate to what you're saying. That feeling is in the gut, it is mm -hmm. where this disease you know, lives, but it's also where the emotion center for me. And it sounds like for you is, and you can pick up on those signs and I won't bang on about that, but I do want to say for any listeners saying, thinking, no, this can't, this can't be, this can't have happened that I too uh, took a different pathway after being on immunosuppressants and um, became much more healthy because of it. And, and like you say, you know, it's something we live with, we'll continue to live with. Um, but um, I just wanted to make that point because I oh, know. I'm so glad you did. Yeah. yeah. So we're sisters in that Yay. way. We can talk <laughs> about that at, <laughs> at other times, because as you know, it's very, very rare to find somebody that isn't in intense treatment for it. Yeah. Yeah. Most uh, people I, I have over the years, when I was first diagnosed, I really didn't want to join any support groups or anything because I was like, I do not want to be, I, I, I can't deal with anybody else's perceptions or possible negativity right now. I need to just focus on my my healing. But now I've, I've added more people through social media who have autoimmune diseases or Crohn's specifically. And I do find that cases like ours are kind of a rarity, but I mm -hmm. I truly believe that for me, perhaps it's just luck and good genetics or something that I've been able to pull through it, but it's been a complete lifestyle shift for me too. Also, I've been, um, I'm in the middle of reading The Body Keeps the Score, which is all about trauma and how traumatic responses can often exhibit through autoimmune diseases and disorders. Yes. Because again, it all goes back to the gut and where we're emotionally coming from. So yeah, yeah. No, I I firmly believe that. I fir I feel and with people I've worked with throughout the years, you know, to me it feels um, a very simplistic way that I've I've equated it to at times is when your voice is shut down, when mm -hmm. you're not able to, when you're uh, have experiencing emotional pain or trauma. But your your voice, your ability to um, express yourself in a healthy way, et cetera, like as a child or in an oppressive relationship, et cetera. When mm -hmm. that is shut down for so long, then our body um, fights with itself is kind of how I see it. If I yeah. would make a little cartoon, very unclinical explanation of it, but that's what resonates for me. But we can do another show yeah. on that another show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Tell me now I do want to hear how you, how you led into your work then. But I just 
Yeah, I, I sat there thinking, I, yeah, I don't want to make this about me at all, but I just think it is quite coincidental. And I do want to affirm that, that yeah, this can it, happen. Yeah, it does tie in because it's a very serious illness. So we, we get to know our, our bodies in a very different way. We're, we're presented with the frailty of our mortality all the time when we carry a disease like this. And that, that and changes the awareness so that we bring. Yes. And the importance that people don't always pick up with the, the illness and autoimmune diseases in, in particular is the stress factor. And mm -hmm. I'm 100% with you that it's not about what I eat as much as it is about the stress I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, if we, it is, you know, it's more food related than doctors will let you um, agree or, or yeah. will let you believe when it comes to healing, obviously healing foods, et cetera. But but um, I, I just would encourage anybody that's dealing with an autoimmune disorder to start looking at the interplay of stress and de-stressing mm -hmm. yeah. as much Do as possible. Trauma mm -hmm. research on your own life. Yeah. Right. So worth right. it. So worth it. Well, tell us about your work then as we're winding down here. So being a death doula means it's, it's, I, I kind of, call it being like a fairy godmother that helps because it's there's so many aspects of it so a lot of people are like well there's hospice already exists so i've already got somebody who's going to help me or my granddad or whomever uh when when we're when it's obvious that we're not going to get better when we're terminal hospice already exists hospice is wonderful i'm not stepping on any of the toes of hospice what I do is different. Hospice is going to take care of the person and their medical needs. They're going to make sure that they're clothed, fed, bathed, they have entertainment. All of that is wonderful and so, so necessary and such a blessing if somebody is able to have that. Um, and I'm not trying to take the place of doctors either because I'm, I'm clearly not a doctor. What I offer is support. So I can help you just prepare for the, just the paperwork aspect of it, which is something that we, we really don't, I mean, this whole thing, you know, the more I learn about this, the more I realize that we don't talk about it. There's so much paperwork that goes into dying. And if you haven't had to help a loved one with their own death um, and, and the paperwork afterwards, then you, you truly have no idea it's a lot of work. So I like to advocate for people who are even healthy in their prime, whatever, come see me now. Let's do the work mm -hmm. to get you taken care of now. Get all of your, your plan set up. You know, what do you want done with your remains? Let's, let's get a funeral thing in line. Let's, let's do your advanced directive. That's a big one because, you know, healthy or not, you could still get hit by a bus or something next week. And you should have some sort of plan for how much do you do you want to be kept on machines? Do you not want to be kept on machines? How long do you want to be kept on machines? Well, what kinds of machines? These are things that we, for the most part, through the privilege of health, don't really ever think about. But they're important things mm -hmm. to consider because if if we don't consider it, that falls on our loved ones. And so a lot of people who are not prepared for their deaths end up feeling this guilt as they see how hard their loved ones are having to work. And that's where I come in to make things easier for everyone involved, not just the dying person, but also their support network. So 
if they've got family, I support the family. If they're not close with their family or don't have family, then I'm there to support spouses, partners, friends, neighbors, whoever is stepping in to be the caring support of their life. I provide emotional support. I can provide respite care, but my, my favorite bit, and I would say the majority of what I provide is death coaching. And that's, that's what I call myself is on my, on my business card and on my website. I am a death coach. Um, the doula word is a beautiful word, um, but I, I find that the connotation didn't really fit with the energy that I felt I was bringing to the dying and, and their loved ones. I feel like I'm truly coaching through this process. And I, I come from a very, uh, both my parents are very athletic, so coaching is just part of what I know. Um, and through my experiences, I feel like I can really be there to, to coach someone through the physical of what's happening. Like, Hey, I noticed that, you know, I've got tingling in my hands and it's difficult to breathe. Okay. Let's talk about that. Or I'm so tired. I don't think I want to do this anymore, but my kids keep saying that I need to eat and stay around and I'm so tired. Let's talk about that. Just providing space for that so we can coach through what is challenging, what is difficult, and provide support for that. I, I also provide support to just mediate conversations between loved ones because dying is, even with a completely involved support team, it's a very isolating experience. Only the person dying is actually dying. And so what they're going through, even if we're witnessing it, is completely different than any of our experiences on the outside. And being able to be a person who has tasted death on my own this handful of times, I now feel like I can serve as proxy and translator for both sides of this. So I can speak to both sides of this experience. So that information isn't being lost and it's not quite so baffling. And so far in my work, I find that that's the biggest gift that I bring to the table is just that clarity. Yes, as you, you know, from the very beginning with your story and as you are wrapping here, that really comes to the fore for me because so often people's responses are, and that's what you experienced, are wrapped up in their own discomfort rather than the person that's actually suffering, you know, being able to be with them. You were not met um, routinely with compassion and with companioning during your illness process or near-death process. And um, it just makes sense that you would be very gifted in that and recognizing, because it's the one thing that's really um, always very much concerned me about end of life is that people will always have a feeling of now will be the time now will be the time the family will be here and they won't be bickering now will be the time that somebody will finally tell me that they love me you know now will be the time at least for this little period of time you know that this will be I'll get my closure people will will come to me in a loving way and that frequently doesn't happen right and to 
be by somebody's side and companioning them through that and be a person that is there to bear witness and um, hold the hand in those situations. Also, what can happen is that families can come to the fore and loved ones come to the fore, obviously, and rally yes. like they never have before. But it Definitely. is it is something that um, we all need to think about with yeah. end of life with our people is giving them, um, you know, giving them what they need and not r running from our own feelings and yeah. running from our own history. Yeah. Mortality is mm. a big, it's a big meaty thing to chew on. So I, I don't fault anybody for, for shirking away from that and, and not wanting it's, to look at that. But I mean, it's, it's a thing that's, it is. You can't put it off. <laughs> no, it's, and it it, it will affect you. Just, just bottom line, it will try affect to you. to hold up a mirror and and just be in check when it's your own issues coming up versus yeah. your loved ones. Yeah, and I try to this. just demystify, just make this as matter of fact and not scary as possible, and also making space for it's still scary because there's so much unknown. But mm. that's that's the big scary. Everything else we tend to meet as it comes. Beautiful. So how can people get a hold of you, Brett? I can be reached through my website. There's a there's a, a little spot at the at the bottom of the page of my website where you can ask me questions. You can find me and that's theartoftheend.com. I can also be found on social media, both on Facebook and on Instagram at the art of the end. Um, and I can also be reached at by by email at the art of the end at gmail.com. And all all of my other contact information is on my website. And uh, yeah, I, I am all too happy to be of service to anybody who needs help navigating the end of life. We will put these links and information in our program notes as well. Thank you so much, Britt, for being with us today. Oh, thank you. This was really lovely. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.